good for us. Before we go condemning the culture around us, everyone has to take a look at their own heart and say, God, search my heart. Is there any wicked way in me? That's what the Minor Prophets is designed to do for us, is to call us to look at, the, at, at God's pronouncement of judgment and say, God, is this me? Much like the disciples in the upper room when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, and one by one each of them says. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. from the book of Amos. Um, it's one of your favorite books to go through. I'm gonna tell you the truth. I have been reading this book for a week. I've, been, I've never been more depressed in my life. It is one of the most harsh and difficult books of the Bible, but there is a twist ending, so stick with me. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time and you're not, you have no idea what's going on, we are going through the Minor Prophets. So we started in the book of Hosea uh, three weeks ago, and we went through Hosea and Joel. We're teaching them, uh, going through them in one whole study. So we're teaching through the whole book in one shot. And, and that is with the desire to highlight the main themes of these books and the main applications of these books. Um, they are hyper-Israel books. They're written... Um, very intensively to the nation of Israel, but doesn't mean we can't learn from them, doesn't mean we can't draw from them, doesn't mean it doesn't, doesn't point us to Christ, which all of these books do. They have the same cyclical theme. All of them have a cyclical theme, that is to return, right? Return to Moses, return to the law, return to the covenant. The second one is to repent, repent of your sin, like come back to God, return from your sin, repent of your sin. And the last one is restoration, if you will repent, if you'll return, restoration will come. God will bless. God will rebuild. God will forgive. God will relent. I mean, there's, there's the, the theme. Those three things are seen very clearly in all of the books that we've studied so far and all the ones that we will continue to see. With, and also in the book of Jonah. The, the only difference is, is that Jonah is learning it himself. So we're seeing a real live prophet of God learn the message that he was supposed to preach. It's pretty fascinating and interesting, and we might skip it because we just did Jonah a few weeks ago, but maybe we won't. I don't know. You'll have to come find out. <laughs> a little clickbait for you. Um, so uh, Amos is the prophet of justice. Uh, and the two sentences that we're going to be using to help us to remember the place uh, of this book in scripture and the theme uh, of it in the Bible is Amos is the shepherd prophet. He is the shepherd prophet. And the theme of it is Israel and God's rebuke. This is uh, by way of um, just kind of helping us to understand, it's the, like the social justice book of the Bible. Um, and, and, and you're going to see why in a little bit. But the book will outline a little like this. In chapters one through two, uh, it's the prophecies against the nations, all the nations that surround Israel. Uh, and it's really going to describe for us the things that God hates. And so we're going to look at those more in depth. Um, chapters three through six is the prophecy against Israel uh, because Israel was doing the same thing as the neighboring nations that they were condemning. 
in, in chapters 7 through 9 are the visions of judgments. So Amos will have these uh, four visions of God's judgment coming against the nation of Israel, uh, and one of them being the Assyrian invasion and the destruction of the northern kingdom of of Israel. So remember at this time, Israel is split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom um, of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the Assyrians will fully conquer the, uh, the northern kingdom will only partially uh, conquer Judah. So um, just have that in mind, places you in history where we are uh, as far as when this prophecy is going on. He's prophesying at the same time as Hosea. So um, and we'll get, I'm getting ahead of myself, all right? So the key verses, if you're like, what are some key verses? Uh, if you were wondering, um, chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, it says, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, right? That's the theme. You did not, you'll see that throughout the book, you did not return to me declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That is a terrifying, terrifying statement. And it's meant to be that way. There is a sense within this book of God's sovereignty and judgment and fury, unlike any of the other ones, um, and you're like, well, wait a second, the God of the New Testament is so loving and such a hippie and, you know, lives homelessly and, and love everyone. There's grace. The same mouth that says, thus saith the Lord, is the same mouth that calmed the sea and the wind in the New Testament. It's the same God. Okay, so we cannot divorce the two. God's character in the Old Testament of righteousness and holiness is the same one in which Jesus calls his followers to. The difference is, it we'll see later, okay? So just stick with me. So the second key verse is Amos chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. It says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, and, none, and with none to quench it for Bethel. Okay? He, his theme is, seek God and live. Like destruction is coming, wrath is coming, seek the face of God and you will live. It's this cry and this plea with the nation to return to the Lord. Now Amos prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And all of the kings of the north were bad kings. All of them were wicked kings. It's during the time that the, the nation of Israel, their enemies are subdued. They've conquered them. There's, there's no war. There's peace. They have, uh, and during that time, they've been able to accumulate wealth, great wealth, as well as establish a, a well-oiled machine of false worship and false gods and idolatry. And, and the way that they're worshiping those things is grossly uh, wicked. In, in the second chapter of Amos, verse 12, it tells us that the king, he had said to the prophets, stop prophesying, and some listened. So the king says, I don't want to hear it anymore. Like all of you prophets, stop prophesying. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Nobody wants to hear what you have to say. Why? Look at all the gold. Look at all the riches. Look at all the wealth. No one cares what you have to say. Okay? It's pretty gnarly. And some of them actually listen. And so, because they listen, God raises up another man 
And he sends out Amos, a man who is a shepherd and a fig picker. Uh, that's what he calls himself. He's like, I'm a sheep breeder and I'm a fig picker. He has no training and God calls him to go in and confront uh, Jeroboam II. It says in Amos chapter 7, Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. And he obeys. God is famous for doing this kind of thing, isn't he? Throughout his word, he takes the most obscure or, or someone who's living in obscurity. I mean, uh, Amos was from a place called Tekoa, which it bordered along the northern kingdom and southern kingdom of Judah. It was just below that borderline. And so he's in this little obscure, it's a wild territory. The only reason we know where it is is because of texts like this. Like no one cares about it. It's just this wild, weird place. Like when you're driving out towards Yosemite and you see these little towns, no one cares. They're just trying to get to Yosemite, right? It's like Gilmore, and you're like, nah, no one cares. Like, no one cares that you're here. We're just trying to get to this one place. That's Tekoa. Like, no one cares that this place exists. And God is famous for taking someone out of obscurity, calling them into the ministry, not because they're equipped, not because they're, they're educated, but because God calls them, he then equips them and then sends them. And what God is looking for in all of his servants is a willingness and an obedience. That's all he's looking for. If you're willing to follow God wherever he'll send you and you're willing to obey, even in the tough and the difficult, God can use you. Why? Why does God do it this way, right? Of all the ways that God could possibly do it, like why this way? I'm a testimony of that. I can barely read. <laughs> I didn't go to college. I dropped out of Bible college. It's two years. It's like not even that big a deal. One of my classes, one of the finals, was knowing the books of the Bible in order. And I dropped out. Okay? So, so why does God do this kind of stuff? Because everyone can say it has nothing to do with that person. It has everything to do with God. All glory be to God. God is famous for taking the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He took a Pharisee of Pharisees, a, a persecutor of the church, and he sent him as the mouthpiece to the world, one of the leaders of, of modern missions, the Apostle Paul. He took this guy who hated the name of Jesus, killed Christians, who, who threw them in prison, and he says, you're the one I'm going to use to take the gospel to the world. Um... You think of Timothy, this young guy who, who doesn't know what he's doing, who's got stomach issues, and he's, he's like dairy sensitive, and God says, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to put you into one of the most gnarly cities in all of the world, and you're going to preach my gospel and to run the church there. I mean, God is famous for doing that kind of stuff. And it's not, God doesn't call you because you're equipped. God calls you, and then he equips you for the work, not through anything that we necessarily do, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, that God does not leave us orphans to try and figure it out ourselves. God says, I have given you my spirit, therefore you have all authority has been given to you. It's an amazing thing that God does in and through his servants, and what he's desiring is just simply obedience and a willingness to go, and Amos is like, oh, all right. I like sheep and I like figs. Like, let's do it. Um, here we go. But he begins in, in the first chapter to pronounce judgments 
upon these different nations. God is furious at the immorality going on, not just with Israel, but the surrounding nations. So it, it reminds us again, God's not just concerned about Israel, he's concerned about the entire world, right? So the first thing is in chapter two, verse, or, or sorry, it says, um, I will turn away its punishment, sorry, verse three. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. It's a poetic say, way of saying there's going to be four judgments that come. I will not turn away its punishment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron, but I will send fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. And I will also break the gate and bar of Damascus. Okay, he goes on to talk about later in these chapters, uh, as well as chapter 2, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father going to the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. What is, what is he pronouncing judgment over? He's pronouncing judgment over crushing the needy and oppressing the poor. Throughout this book, he's going to bring it up multiple times about the way that they treated people who had nothing, people that were down and out, people that were poor, uh, and they took advantage of them. They would actually, it's a, in what I read you in, in verse 7, it says that they would actually sell these people. So they would buy them or, or kidnap them, take them because they had nothing, and then they would sell them into slavery. So the second thing that God hates is slavery. But first of all, the first thing that God hates is oppression of the poor. In chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. It talks about because of the way that you've treated these people. God and his law made so many avenues in which the poor were to be taken care of. That's why Ruth and, Rahab, uh, Ruth and um, Naomi, when they were coming back into Israel, Naomi told the girls, she, she told her Moabitess daughter-in-laws, stay here. There's laws in my land that says that widows are to be taken care of, but I'm an Israelite and you're not, right? They, there's laws that protect me and will help me, and so I'm going to go back to my people. God in his law saw fit to say, take care of widows, take care of orphans, take care of those who have nothing. Don't marginalize them. Don't treat them like nothing. Treat them like human beings. God has a heart for the poor and he hates the oppression of the poor. He says in chapter eight, verse four, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the, the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of, what, uh, of the wheat. They say, how can we take advantage of these poor people that have nothing? How can we drive up the, the cost of grain and we can buy them for a pair of sandals? To cheapen and, and to lessen someone of humanity and to, to drain that from them, God hates that. He hates it. And in fact, he says judgment will come before, uh, because of it. And this is not just an Old Testament idea. This carries into the, the New Testament. The book of James has very harsh rebukes against the oppression of the poor. He says, woe to you. 
who oppress the poor, right? James said, pure and undefiled religion is this, that you visit the orphan and the widow. Why is that pure and undefiled? He says this, because those types of people often could not repay what was given. This is pure, is when we give without expecting anything in return. That's pure, because that's the way that Jesus gave. He gave of himself, knowing full well that those would reject him. But he gave his full self, all of him, his blood, his, his whole life was given even to those who would deny him, spit upon him, and hate him. Christ himself was poor. Remember at one point he said, uh, uh, foxes have holes and birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. Now, this is not a proof text for you to be just a, a slug. And you're like, well, Jesus did. No, like you should work hard. Jesus was a carpenter. He had a trade. Like he did stuff. He didn't just live in his mom's basement forever, right? He, <laughs> he went on for three years and was crucified. But still, he did some stuff, right? So these people often could not repay. And James reminds us that this is the heart of God, to take care of the poor to take care of those who are in need, never to oppress them or to marginalize them. Because they already are. And granted, guys, this is hard. It's difficult um, because we do get taken advantage so many times, you know. There are those who, who, you know, say they don't have anything or they say they're poor and they're making, they're making so much money just begging, right? We've all heard stories about like, man, I would never go back to work because, you know, I'm making money off the government or I'm making money off this or making money off that. You know, sometimes it's not really our... We need to be discerning, obviously. But I don't think it's necessarily our job to, like, grill these people on what, like, what's going on. You got two bucks in your pocket that you're going to spend on a hot dog, like, at Costco <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> you're going to eat like a king at Costco with those $2. And you see someone in need, and it's like, like, what is it? How, you know what I'm saying? Like, how does that really harm you? The Bible tells us that sometimes... We're to be taken advantage of. Like, it's going to happen. Even, even in, in, I think when we study through Corinthians, when Paul says, why not let yourself be pulled into court? Like, why not? It's the testimony of Jesus that you make peace. And you, you're the, you know, so, so how we, I know in, in our culture it's difficult because we've been so fooled or, or something is ingenuine. But let it not be us who are ingenuine. That's not on us. Like, let, let our conscience be clear on that, um, for, for sure. The second thing that, that he indicts these people for in the neighboring countries and, and, and surrounding towns is slavery. Slavery. They were enslaving the poor and selling and abusing them. What's interesting is that slavery still exists today. I'm sure you're well aware of it. There's estimated some 20.9 million people who are victims of slavery or trafficking today. It's $150 or $150 billion each year in profits is trafficking, slavery, $150 billion. $99 billion of, uh, of that money is sexual exploitation. That's what it goes towards. $34 billion is towards enslaving those for construction, mining, and manufacturing and utilities. 9 billion agriculture, forestry, 8 billion domestic service, like in someone's house. Guys, God has hated slavery before 
the civil rights movement before anything that we've seen in the last two years, um, it's something that God hates. Because men were never meant to be owned by other men. They are owned by their maker, who is God. That's who we belong to. And we are made in the image of God. The ownership of another person is the degrading of a human being to be sold as a commodity. It's wrong. And it should hit us in that sense of like, this is wrong. It's wrong. Because it's written upon our hearts. The Bible says that the law of God is written upon our heart. Like the, the conscience tells us that that is wrong. It shouldn't be. It, it should never be. And, and it's interesting that it's, it's not going, it hasn't gone away. Like as, as modern as we are and, and as free as we are in this country, there's still so much of this going on in the dark. And it's not even in the dark. It's happening in broad daylight, but yet it's becoming something that, that is just commonplace again. And God hates it. He hates it. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to set the captives free. That he is the one who breaks the bonds and breaks the chains. That we were slaves to sin and Christ frees us from that. Um, and so in, in saying that, I know it's a dark and it's a dark thing. But it happens around us and God hates it. God hates it. Um, and what we've seen in the, in the last few years, that's the point I was trying to make. What we've seen is this rise of the awareness to it. And, and, and again, I'm not like a social justice person and I'm not going to make you all sign a pledge and, and wear a wristband and all that stuff. But we have to understand that these things that we're seeing in our culture popping up, these are kingdom ideas. These ideas of the freedom and all these things that are coming out, these are kingdom ideas. But the way in which men are trying to get to them is the kingdom without the king. This only happens. What, we're, we're, what people are pushing for and trying to, to um, legislate, you cannot legislate sin out of people's hearts. Okay? The only answer for the freedom of all men is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is ruling and reigning. We come under his leadership and his guidance, and it's from that place. Okay? You cannot legislate the, the sin out of people's hearts. And so this is a, a kingdom idea, but it's the rejection of the king. It's men trying to get to a utopian society apart from Jesus Christ. And we know how that will go. Um, but we continue to bring hope into the world through the message of the gospel. In um, chapter 1, verse 13, if you'll, I have to turn a page, but it brings his, his third one, what God hates, is the murder of the unborn. Chapter 1, verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions and a people, uh, of the people of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. Now, the people of Ammon, or the Ammonites, were entrenched in gross sexual immorality. Just, it, you can trace it back to their lineage. These were the people that would often offer their children up to the false god of Molech, who would have arms of iron, and they would heat this god up with fire, and they would place their children unwanted children upon its arms. But you can actually trace the beginning of this group of people back to its roots, and its roots are immoral. 
When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his daughters escaped, they decided, his daughters decided to repopulate the earth. And they got their father drunk and they slept with him. And from that came two children, Ammon and Moab. And those two groups of people. So the Ammonites, from the very beginning, were birthed in sexual immorality. And it continued throughout their history. We can trace so much of the pain of our society back to a certain event called the sexual revolution in the 1970s. In the 1970s, it was estimated that 3.3 million, there were 3.3 million single mothers. In 2020, it is reported that there are 15.3 million kids living with a single mother. 3.3 are living with a single father. What was birthed out of a sexual revolution of we're going to do it our way and not God's way is fatherless children. Not to mention the gross act of abortion that has killed millions. The point of that story, and God is going to judge it, obviously. He judges these people. But sin never just affects you. Sin never just affects you. If you think what is done in secret and what's done um, on your own, like, hey, this is my life, my world, I can do what I want, understand that it affects generations around you. It has, sin has the power to do that. But Christ has the power to break the bonds of sin throughout a generation. And it begins with your generation. Your decision to follow Christ will break any past that you have or any past that your family has and, and all of these things, that will break and it can break in Christ and Christ alone. As the pronouncement of judgment comes and you begin to realize that there's a circle being drawn around Israel and now Israel's at the center like a bullseye. It's talking about Edom, it's talking about Gilead, it's talking about these different countries and, and the author is just circling Israel and now he comes to Israel who's like, well, we're not that bad. Usually the prophets are talking about us and this time it's not us. <laughs> Edom, you're busted or whatever. Um, anyone have siblings? Yeah, you're, you know, you love, I love that. When my brothers would get busted and I'm like, hey, <laughs> it's on you, idiot. Um, I love my brothers, they're great. But um, that's what's happening. Israel's now being encircled with these judgments and they're like, yeah, it's not us this time. And Amos says, now, now I wanna talk to you. And he picks it up. Um, I'm talking about them in, uh, here in chapter two. He says, thus says the Lord in verse four, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies with their father followed, but I will send fire upon Judah. It goes on to say um, in verse seven, they pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor. They oppress the poor. They pervert the way of the humble. The man and his father go into the same girl and defile my holy name uh, through, through trafficking and through slavery. They were um, buying these women off the slave market and, and defiling them and all of these things. And 
Um, verse 12, it says, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets saying, do not prophesy. Hear this, verse one of chapter three, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family, which I brought up out of the land of Egypt, but you enslaved people, right? So he's beginning to say, oh, I notice, notice I'm talking about everyone around you, okay? Now he says to them, you oppress the poor, you enslave people. You're buying them off the market. And he says, and shouldn't you know, guys, shouldn't you know you yourselves were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out and delivered you. And now you enslave others. Judgment will come. It's interesting to note that the people of God were committing the same sin. They were just as wicked as those around them. And that's why I think this book is good for us. As depressing and somber as this room is right now, and all of your faces are like, I, I don't know why I came, okay? I, I, it gets better. Stick with me. I know we're only in chapter three, but it gets better, okay? I think it's good for us. Before we go condemning the culture around us, everyone has to take a look at their own heart and say, God, search my heart. Is there any wicked way in me? That's what the Minor Prophets is designed to do for us, is to call us to look at, the, at, at God's pronouncement of judgment and say, God, is this me? Much like the disciples in the upper room when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, and one by one each of them said, is it I? Is it I? Which I found interesting that they would all come to this realization that within me it is possible to do the very thing that he is saying. And that's what I believe the Minor Prophets is designed to do, is to call us to search our own heart and say, God, I, I open myself to you. God, point it out. Where there is, is blinders on my character, where, where I have I've shunned to see these things, God, bring them to the forefront. Help me to see them as they are. Help me, God, to repent and return that you may restore me. Right? That's the point of it. Remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, he says, And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying your, to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? He says this wonderful word, hypocrite. Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. That word speck is the word sawdust, meaning that the log and the speck are made of the same thing. They're made up of the same material. Why do we so easily see the speck in someone else? Is because we see our sin so much more grotesquely on others, right? We, we easily spot the same sin that we are guilty of on other people and it grosses us out. Hence the comment, right? I can't believe they would do that. I, myself, would never do that. <laughs> oh, here's my stars, all my gold stars from Sunday school or whatever. And then we're all, you know, convinced of pride. Jesus says, how, are you, how, can, you, how can you say to someone, hey, you got a speck in your eye. Like you, got, you got this little sin going on here. All the while, you got a four by six sticking out of the front of your face, and you're just whacking people with it everywhere you look. And there's more to that story. Obviously, you could spend a whole Bible study dealing with that alone. But what did Jesus say? Don't be a hypocrite. There's one thing that the church has been like 
condemned for forever is our hypocrisy, right? The church is full of, finish the sentence, hypocrites. Like, yeah, and so are you, okay? It's dealing, everyone is, in the sense that we say one thing and we do another. That's hypocrisy, right? Jesus here is convincing us again. Before we go condemning culture and say, when is culture going to change? Jesus says, when is the church going to start doing what they're preaching? Because when we talk about revival, to revive something means that at one time it was alive. And it must be brought back to life, right? That's revival. It is to revive something that was once alive. So, So where does revival begin? It begins within the house of the Lord. It begins within God's people that were once alive, who've drifted, and now are coming back so that they can see further life being sprouted. So I, I believe that these, these chapters, as heavy as they are, and we can, like Israel, look at those other nations and say, I can't believe they would do this. I can't believe they would do this. And Amos comes and says, you're doing the same thing. And you should know better. You were slaves yourselves. Right? The Bible convinces us again. James, he wrote this. If we're only hearers of the word and not doers, we fall to the same plight of Israel. Chapter 3, he says this. The alarm is going off. Like it's sounding. Um, Where does it say it? Here we go. O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only... No, where is it? It talks about a lion... There it is. Thank you. If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God has, does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servant, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? He says, the, the sound has gone out that like a lion is nearby, which everyone should be on alert. He says, the trumpet is blowing. Like, Alarm sounds are going off. Have you ever been had the pleasure of going to the Midwest? <laughs> just a few. Good. You should go sometime and then come back to California and just relish in the fact that you get to live here. Um, Midwest is just a special little place. But um, my wife's family lives in the center of Illinois, in the middle of cornfields. And every so often we go to visit. It's one. It's so much fun. There's no one around. Just corn and soybeans. And so, you know, it's quiet. It's like an eerie kind of quiet where you're like, signs kind of quiet. M. Night Shyamalan kind of quiet, you know? But every day at 12 and 5, there is a tornado siren that goes off every day without fail. It is, it's like a practice. It's like, make sure this thing's still working. The first time I went there, I, I ran to the, the, grab my kids, like ran down the base and was like, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. There's nothing that scares me more than tornadoes. I hate tornadoes. It's, it, it's an act of God. Like it's, I mean, yeah, earthquakes, whatever. But if you see this whirling tunnel that picks up houses and chucks cows, like we're all going to die. We're all going to die. Okay. That siren goes off every day for, for the purpose of alarming people, of waking people up. God says, like a lion roaring in the middle of the city, like a trumpet going off, like bombs going off around you, you should be alert. And he says, you don't even know what's going on. You've turned a deaf ear. You're not, you're not listening. You're not listening to me. 
He says in verse three, can two walk together unless they are agreed? He, he likens it to the fact of two people walking, holding hands, and he says, I'm trying to get you to go in this direction, but you are fighting me, and you are pulling, and you're trying to go the other way. And he says, how can we walk together if we're, agree, if we're not agreed? You're going your own way, not my way. And God is saying, we're walking together, but you're pulling in the opposite direction. So the scary verse comes in chapter four. He says, so prepare to meet your God. We have so many wonderful worship songs about meeting God, right? Where our faith will someday become sight. No longer will we need faith. We'll get to see all that is heaven. We have wonderful worship songs talking about the face of God, seeing him in his glory, the train of his robe. I mean, he goes on and on and on talking about this. If you know Jesus, those songs mean something to you. If you don't know Jesus, then you read this verse with great terror. Be prepared to meet your God. This is the sense in which it's written of rebellion and judgment that is to come. Chapter five, however, okay, he gives us this doom message of like, you're gonna, we're done, you're done, we're done, we're all done, it's done, right? Verse one of chapter five, it says, hear this word which I take against you in the lamentation of the house of Israel. Uh, move down to verse four, seek me and live. Verse six, seek the Lord and live. There is this cry this was the key to their survival. But in order to do that, they would have to stop seeking their own disobedience and self-will. And that's why he mentions these places. He's, he talks about, go to, you can't go to Bethel or Gilead, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over Beersheba. Nor, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity. Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Why does he mention these, these places? In Israel's life, Bethel, and in their history, these were special places. Bethel, or Bethel, as we say it today, um, and they have a church and stuff. The place, it's the place where God met Jacob. Remember when Jacob is running from his brother Esau, and he has this vision of heaven, and heaven's open, and he sees a ladder, and angels descending and ascending upon it, and a voice from heaven, God himself, speaks to Jacob, right? That happened in Bethel. And when he leaves and when he comes back, there he builds an altar to the Lord to worship him. In Gilgal, it was the place where Israel's spiritual reproach was rolled away in the days of Joshua. It's written about in Joshua chapter 5. It was this place of, of cutting away the flesh. It was a, a place of dedication to the Lord. But he says, you're not going to be able to go there because you're far from me. And judgment will come. In verse 8 of chapter 5, he says this. It's this plea to come back. He says, seek the Lord and live. He made the Pleiades and Orion. He turns the shadow of death into morning. He makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out in the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. He rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes up upon the fortress. What, what is Amos saying? He says, if he made the stars that we see, if he, he made these, these constellations that we see, cannot God save you and restore you? The answer is yes, but what do you have to do? He says, seek God. You have to take responsibility and take a step in that direction, and God will meet you there. God will restore you. He will and he can. That's the point. 
The, the God who made the tides, he says, who, who calls the water forth and then sends it back, talking about waves and tides, right? Who, who, whose voice does that, he says, he can restore you if you will, if you'll come. God will never force you to go to his heaven, ever. God's not going to force you to go to heaven. If you're like, I don't want to go, he's like, you're going to get there, and you're going to love it, Right? <laughs> And you're going to ride a tiger. That's not like, God never does that. He doesn't force you into his heaven, but he does plead with every single person and says, seek God and live. Guys, we're living in a time that's very exciting, right? The Middle East is going crazy. Russia's like nuts. China stuff is happening on a prophetic calendar that's insane. And we're all like, yeah, Maranatha, right? Okay. That means come Lord Jesus. We're all very excited at the return of Christ. But like Amos and the prophets before, as you'll see in the times of judgment that come, Amos prays, Lord, would you relent? Would you be patient? Would you be kind? Why? Because destruction is going to come. And I, wanna, I don't want to see, he says, I don't want to see this happen to these people. As much as we fervently pray for the return of Christ, may we also fervently pray for the hearts of men to be turned back to Jesus. Because this is, these judgments that we read about are nothing in comparison to what will happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. That kind of, of doom and, and, and that kind of, of destruction that will come. It's, it's nothing. These things are nothing in comparison to that. Remember a couple years ago, I, think, I don't know if I brought this up the other day, but remember when like birds were just dropping dead everywhere and like fish were just dying and I had a friend call me like, is this, the, is this it? Is this the end? Like birds are dying. I'm like, dude, this is nothing. This is nothing. It was like, you know, a couple sparrows dropped in a field and they're like, it's the end times. No, it's not. This is not, this is not the seven year period. What we're talking about is a third of all animals dead in the ocean. A third of this, a third of that, that is a lot. We're talking about destruction like our world has never seen. And so as much as we pray, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come, may we also pray that God would send us and send us out which he has. And may we pray, God, be patient, be kind, be generous with these people that do not know you, who ultimately mock you and want nothing to do with you. Lord Jesus, would you please be kind? And would you be patient and long-suffering as you have been? Chapter 7 begins the visions that he now sees. In verses uh, 1 through 8, he has a vision of locusts coming and, and devouring everything. And it says that Amos then prayed, Lord, would you relent? And so the Lord relented concerning this in verse 6. He sees a vision of fire and coming and, and devouring everything. And it says that Amos then prayed and God relented and he did not send the locusts or the fire. And guys, I don't know how prayer works exactly. Like I'm not going to lie to you and be like, oh yeah, it totally works like this. You can just twist God's arm and like say it this way. And God's like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's not how it works. God relented after the prophet prayed. There is... What it tells us in the application of it is that there is power in prayer. There is power in prayer for sure. How it works, I don't know. But the question then is, what if Amos hadn't prayed? What would have happened? Like, what if, what if 
Amos wasn't there to stand in the gap and say, God, please, would you relent from your anger? And God says, okay, I will. Imagine, guys, and that's what we get to do. We get to stand in the gap through prayer to those who are in rebellion towards God. That's one of the benefits of knowing Jesus is we come boldly to the throne of grace and we make our requests made, to, made known to God and God then does as he wills. But there's power in prayer. And you think, man, there's no way that this person, leave that in the hands of God, pray, pray. There's power in prayer. How it works, I'm not sure. But here's the one that we really wanna look at and that is um, the vision of the plumb line. Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on the wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. So the plumb line would be used... Right? It would be a weight on the end of a string. It would help to see if something was made straight, if it's plumb, right? If things are plumb, you've heard that said, when you're building the things that you build, um, right? T-square, mm, everything has to be straight. How have you built stuff crooked? I build everything crooked. Everything's always like wonky. All my cabinets in my kitchen are like off, and they're not straight. Because I have astigmatism? No, it, <laughs> but like... I just don't see it. I'm like, it looks good. And my wife's like, oh my gosh, that is so bad. But you know what? God, there's grace. So a plumb line is used to make sure a wall will be built straight. And the Lord says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set my standard in the nation of Israel. And when he does that, you can see that Israel is so far off. And so he says, look, Amos, what do you see? And he says, I see your standard. And God says, what do you see about Israel? He says, I see that they are chronically crooked. Chronically. And so God says, you know, like, what do you think I should do? Like, it, it, it's coming. Guys, the word of God is God's plumb line for us. As followers of Jesus, as we read God's word, as we follow after the Lord, when you open God's word, the Bible tells us that it is a mirror and we look into the mirror, the perfect law of liberty, what it reflects back to us is, is Jesus. What we see or what we should see is the standard of God and we look at our own life in that mirror and say, God, does it line up? Does it match up? If not, God, in your grace, forgive me my sin. Let's get back on track. That's what God's word does for us. It reveals his standard, not our standard, right? Not our, our standard, but God's standard. When you open the word, what we see is Jesus Christ. That is the standard. And thankfully, we don't have to get there on our own effort. By keeping the law of God perfectly in order that we might obtain righteousness from God in that way. We've been given God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. A way has been made for us. And the word of God is now used as the mirror by which when we look into it, it's, we see Jesus, it reveals the standard, and Christ is the standard. And we hide in him, the Bible says. We are hidden in Christ. Um, how many of you have ever been on like a real camping trip? I'm not talking about like with the bathroom and 
and a cabin and, you know, and you're like in the woods, but you're not really camping. Like you're, you're somewhere where if you fall, you're going to die. Like there's no one coming for you. There's no cell service. There's no bathroom. You're making your own kind of bath. You know what I mean? Um, those are the best ones. When death is like a factor, that's a camping trip. Like that's fun. Um, anywho, <laughs> uh, but you're away from civilization and then you finally get back to your car and you look in the mirror and you're like, oh my God, right? White heads everywhere. You got stuff in your teeth. You smell like death. I mean, you don't really smell it until you get in the car and you're trapped into that little bubble and you're like, what died while I was gone? It's you, you smell, right? It, there's, there's, there's that, that, yeah. But then you, you wash up, you look in the mirror, you start popping things, you start refreshing, you start moving things, you start plucking things, you start removing black heads, and you beautify yourself again. It's the word of God for us. The word of God reveals all of those little things, those little blemishes in our, in our holiness, in our righteousness, and God says, this is the standard by which we're called to walk in holiness and righteousness. Not the standard of the world, not what everyone says is like Christian Buddhism, like which is basically like you can be a Christian but also just do what feels good. No, the Bible never says that. It never says like obey my law, obey my word, but if you don't want to, that's okay too. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm sure your intentions were good, right? What does God say? That's called sin. And that's what Jesus went to the cross for. And there's no like harshness within it. There's God saying, return, seek me and live. Where, where we have walked away, perhaps you've walked away, you've gotten far from the Lord. What does he say? Seek me and bring restoration back to your soul. You will live again in the deepest and truest part of you, your soul. The last vision that he has is of summer fruit, meaning it's ripe, it's time for, it's time, it's done. This is chapter nine. Moving right along, a lot of stuff happens in chapter eight. You should read it on your own when you got some time. I don't want you to hate me forever by staying in this, but let, let's just read, let's read this together. And I want you to think about, think about this because I read this this week and just about peed my pants every time I read it, okay? Chapter nine, verse two, it says this, though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. What? There's a sea snake? Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. This is the blackest it gets right here. Now, remember I told you, there's a twist ending. He M. Night Shyamalan's us so hard right now. We are like, he was dead the whole time? Watch this. <laughs> Do you know who M. Night Shyamalan is? Am I that old? Okay. I referenced Radiohead a couple weeks ago and all of you looked at me like I was a freak. And I was like, oh no, I'm no longer hip. <laughs> I never was. Okay, here it was. This is where it changes. This is where it turns. This is why you came to church. Ready? 
on that day, verse 11, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. That's, a, again, referencing Joel, right? That's a quote from Joel. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in the land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. It is dark. It is black. Though you dig to hell, I'm going to find you, right? Like you're going to try to escape and I'm going to find you. And then suddenly it turns the corner just like that. And God says, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore you. And, and notice you guys are mentioned in that verses. Did you, did you read that? Did you catch it? You're mentioned in there. Gentiles. This book points us all the way to the cross and Pentecost where the church would then and the gospel would then go out to all and to any who would turn and seek God and live. It references you and I being joined and restored. This is not replacement theology. This is not saying that the church is the new Israel and that Israel is done and God's done with them and now church is Israel. That's not what this is saying. This is very much speaking about Israel. When the Bible says Israel, the translation is Israel, okay? God is not done with his people. Why? He made promises to them and he will keep his word. He will keep his word. We have been grafted in to the blessing. We've been grafted in. God will not forsake Israel. He will restore them. He says, I will raise up ruins. God promises to take what was ruined and to repair it. Does this sound like anything that's happened in, in the last 2,000 years? He'll take what's broken and he'll repair it. He will, he will rebuild it. Sometimes God works in completely new ways. Letting the old die and doing a work of a new creation. Other times God works to raise up ruins and to rebuild. Both are glorious works of the Lord. He says, not only am I going to do away with the old, I'm going to usher in a new covenant, new wine. A, a new family where it's extended to all. Some, sometimes God does a new thing. He even prophesied it in, in the book of Isaiah. Behold, I am doing a new thing. A new thing. God repairs, he rebuilds. All the Gentiles who are called by my name, he says, God announced that even the Gentiles who are called by my name would come under the tabernacle of David, which is a promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The tabernacle of David would be almost completely wiped out, only to be fulfilled in the Messiah. You see, again, the theme is, in all of the mess that is these people's lives, this time frame's lives, of, of the oppression of the poor, the oppression of people, the enslaving of people, of sexual immorality, what kind of hope would a generation or, or a people group have when judgment comes upon them or pronounced upon them, the only hope they have is an act of God through a Messiah, through a Savior. And the same thing, listen, what is mirrored in these texts, in this book, is the same situation that our present country is in. Notice, 
All of those things pertain to us. All of those things are still happening. What hope does this nation, this world have for, for a grotesquely wicked generation? It is the power of Jesus Christ and him alone. And what this world can go from is from a total mess to finding their Messiah in Jesus Christ. And the mode of transportation in which God has chosen to take that message is through sheep herders and fig pickers, which is you and me, the unqualified, the uneducated, those that feel powerless, God says, you're the one I'm gonna use. You're the vessel, you're the cracked vessel. And in you, I pour my message of the gospel so that when you go through difficulty, when you go through turmoil, that message and that light spills out into those around you. James, the brother of Jesus, quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 at the Council of Jerusalem there in the New Testament. He used the passage to demonstrate that God promised to reach the Gentiles and to bring them into his kingdom under the Messiah, not under Israel. Isn't that a wonderful thing? James is sitting there at the, at the council when they're having this, this discussion. Is like the house of Cornelius gets saved and everyone's speaking in tongues and Peter's standing there and he's like, I'm a witness to it. Man, they're truly saved. And, and all the Jews are like, no, you gotta be a Jew and you gotta do this. And what does James say? Amos told us about this. Amos told us about this. So why is Amos relevant? This is why. <laughs> it's relevant to all of us because it predicted the fact that the Gentiles, you and I, if anyone will seek God, they will live through the power of Jesus Christ. That although they may experience the consequences of their sin, they will never have to experience the full weight of their consequence of the wrath of God because Christ took it. Christ took it. Acts chapter 15, verse 17, it says, so that the rest of mankind, instead of what we have in Amos 9, 12, that we may possess the remnant of Edom, this is because the, the Septuagint, the ancient translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, translated Edom as Adam or mankind. God will restore in abundance. And the days are coming. He talks, Israel had abundance of uh, material abundance. But what God is saying and what he promised is to restore them to prosperity from him and in him. Greater wealth and greater riches. I find it fascinating if you look at what, the, the, is, what they were doing, the sins that they were committing, the oppression of the poor. Jesus said that if you find me, you, you are rich in all things, Right? To the poor, you are rich in Christ. To those who are slaves, he says, in Christ, you are, not, you are not owned by anyone. You are owned by God because you're made in the image of God. To those who, he said later, um, to those who were slaves, what was the other thing? I forget. This is why you write stuff down. Christ is all those things. To those who were marginalized, he says, like, I'm everything you'll ever need. Freely offered, seek me and live. To those who are doomed, salvation is found in Christ. And to those who are doomed because of their sin, the Bible tells us that those who, who are, die in their sins and trespasses, their destination, their final destination is separation from God for all of eternity. But to those 
who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they become sons and daughters. That's the one. To the fatherless, he is a heavenly father. That's the one. Thank you for reminding me. Man, there's the book of Amos. Who knew? The gospel is preached amidst all the destruction. And again, it just echoes to us. If we will return to the Lord, if we repent of our sin, restoration will come. doesn't matter how far you are. The Bible talks about uh, in Ezekiel, can these dead bones live? And the Lord brings these, these dead bones back to life and puts flesh upon them. Guys, it doesn't matter how far you are from the Lord tonight, you are not past his reach if you have breath in your lungs. You are not too far gone where God cannot reach and restore. And that is the message that we bring to the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. I thank you for the, the, the book of Amos, as crazy and gnarly as it is. And Lord, we come to it with, and we come to you in reverence, Lord. In reading this, this book, you cannot help but realize that you are a holy and righteous God. And we approach you, Lord, on your terms. And we come to you, Lord, messed up, jacked up because of the sin in our life. And we're thankful, God, that we can approach you because of the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross who washes us and cleanses us from all of our sin. And so, Lord, we come to you tonight, although we feel the effects of sin in our life, we are no longer dominated by the rule and the enslavement of sin in our life because Christ has freed us. And so, Lord, may our, our voices be lifted high unto you and in glorious exaltation of what you have done. Where we were dead in sins and trespasses, Lord, you have made alive. Minister the mercy of the Lord to our hearts.